as I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you stressing, but you're going to be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, because they ain't ready for your final version. I'm never going to give up, give up. Fall down, I just got to get up, get up, yeah. You're listening to the Toxic and Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Correct. So uh, Kwame Reed is with us this this morning, and uh, I say morning, but actually Kwame, when folks are listening to this, be it in the afternoon or the next day, and since with the benefit of technology, they, it's kind of on demand, but also it's, it's uh, December 11th on the east coast and i say that specifically east coast because it's it's tomorrow in australia kwame so yes it is so, so what does that say about time and the relativity of it and man's desire to kind of manipulate time um, all of it yes it so is that, relative so so that 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 kind of always uh comes into my consciousness uh about the dis- distinction between eternal time and and man-made time, and when, what, is the, what does this experience mean in terms of how do we experience the, the passage of age and, and and wars, and sometimes it seems that we repeat things. So I don't want to say that wars are timeless, but quite frankly, the Middle East situation can kind of cause you to reflect on, can we learn to turn our, our uh, swords into plowshares? But, mm-hmm. but I, I say that because having Kwame Reed on the show this morning, uh, afternoon or evening, uh, and given his background with really his, his his professional background and his interest, not only interest in human rights, but his proactive daily walk for, for in human rights for, in fact, if I, I don't want, want to put you on blast, uh, uh, Counselor Reed, but it's been for several decades that that you've been pursuing this this quest of, uh, of really basic liberation from a legal standpoint and from a uh, professional standpoint, and then also from a spiritual standpoint. So, so, so let's let's jump in. I don't want to don't want to tease people too much more about your 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 your, your the intersection be, be, between the secular and the sacred, and how you've kind of walked that walk. But but tell us a little bit as we open up a, about yourself and uh, this 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 phrase, human rights lawyer, kind of I think pertains to you. One of the many labels that pertains to you as well. So, uh, good good morning and afternoon and evening to you. Oh, thank you so much. Um, and I'd be happy to just mention a few things about myself. I hope that we can address questions that you have. But uh, this today, uh, December 11th, one day after we uh, celebrated the 40th anniversary of the work of the Advocates for Human Rights, and I, I'm an attorney with the Advocates for Human Rights. I do uh, trial work with them representing asylum clients, but the organization has been doing that work for now um, for decades. My work as a human rights attorney uh, focuses on one, representing persons who are persecuted mm-hmm. in the countries of origin because of a number of factors, including their political opinion, but also their uh, ethnic identity, their religion. Um, but they are people who are in trouble. They cannot go home. Their lives mm-hmm. are, would be in danger if they 
um, were to return to the places where they were persecuted. Mm-hmm. Um, and the advocates, while we, I'm involved in the litigation uh, program, um, the advocates work to restore justice or establish justice on a number of levels through advocacy before uh, national and international bodies. Um, you mentioned Israel just now. One thing that um, we are doing as the advocates is just documenting what is going on in terms of human rights. I, I really mean human rights violations on mm-hmm. by whoever is, by all those who are engaged in human rights violation. And that is the advocate's position to try and seek to establish an understanding of what violations are taking place and what should be done about it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go a little bit further here and say, while that is the advocate's position, the next statement I'm about to make is not the position of the Advocates for Human Rights, my organization. However, many people involved in human rights uh, work are having a discussion. Uh, yes, we need to document what's going on. And yes, it means uh, bringing people to justice who are engaged in human rights violations. But what about peace how do mm-hmm. we restore peace mm. the um you know, it was in 1948 in fact uh in december 10th 1948 that the uniform declaration of human rights was established in the united nations yeah and so nations are supposed to come together to defend human rights. Well, uh, a discussion that I'm a part of says that uh, we're not doing very much in the present war in Palestine. Mm -hmm. Atrocities are continuing. What do we do? Do we insist that there be a ceasefire? Yes, we do. That's my position. Mm-hmm. But the discussion is a little bit more involved than that. I'm uh, I'm fascinated by uh, the position of some human rights uh, committed persons that they actually want to go there without arms. It's, in fact, I, I describe some of the discussions we're having as kind of like a reverse uh, crusade. Mm-hmm. Now, the crusades from the dark ages, they went with arms and they were going to force the surrender of the land to Christians. Uh, But the discussions now is no, but we do need to go there. And we're talking about people from around the country going to Palestine, but particularly to Egypt and Mm -hmm. the uh, border with Gaza and going in with um, calls for peace, Mm -hmm. signs for peace, and just standing in front of the tanks, standing in front of the... um, the fighters, whoever they are, unarmed. Yes. Now, I this hasn't happened yet, but I think the conversations are serious. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in the minds of some, this is a mo- an emotional response, but no, something needs to be done. Yes. And those discussions are taking place. In the meantime, 
uh, of us who work through the law are in fact documenting what's going on. And so we are prepared to um, go to the International Court of Justice at the appropriate time. But there are some immediate conversations that I'm glad to uh, be a part of. Well, for sure, Kwame, as you referenced, I mean, I was my mind just was going back to uh, the images of Gandhi and images of MLK in terms of uh, resistance and images of some of the Buddhist monks that actually, you know, burned themselves on the street to kind of protest uh, in, in, in in Vietnam. So, yeah, p p p p p p to, to be, you know, the, the passive movement is not passive, to, the nonviolent resistance, this might be the, the way to go. My, I was thinking... Uh, that if if the Pope gives his Christmas uh, uh, presentation, not just uh, in the sanctity of Italy, but if he goes to Gaza and gives and tries to give his uh, his his Christmas uh, you know comment uh, during that time, so your your point's well taken. That I think many people see this to be such a such a crisis is a is is an understatement that we must do something. And certainly, MLK would say, "Where would you ask us where do we go from here?" So I appreciate your. You're sharing that you uh you 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 were in law school, but were law schools were they just cabins when you went to law school? I mean, give, give folks a little a little hint about where you went to law school. You went to Howard, I believe. Howard University School of Law, yes. And um, I I went to law school before going to seminary. You and I both went to the Yale Divinity School. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, um, uh, my my story is that when I was growing up as a child. From high school on, I lived in Washington, D.C., but I, I'm from southwest Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And when I was a child in the church where my great-grandmother took me early on, people were convinced that I was going to be a minister. And I <laughs> said, no. Uh -huh. uh, I, I was like Jonah. Uh, I, I went the opposite way in the minds of some. I've, mm -hmm. I've changed. i long since changed my mind how law and, and, and faith commitment can come together. And I think that's what I am engaged in. But but uh, the idea of being a minister, I said no, and I I'm gonna I'm going to law school. Well, I did. I went to law school first, um, but the call to ministry would not leave. Even though I was glad to be a, a legal services attorney, that um, I, I think I was doing something worthwhile then. But I accepted mm -hmm. the call and went uh, to seminary. But it was also in seminary since I'd already finished law school. Um, that I was invited to be a part of a program at the Yale Law School. I already had mm -hmm. my degree from Howard, but I was in, uh, invited to be in a program at the Yale Law School. And back then they called it the Visitor Visiting Scholars. They've changed the uh, the name now. Mm -hmm. But um, and I accepted that because I was given a chance to be mentored uh, in law and religion, how those could come together. Mm. Um, and and I tried to write some things about that, but the uh, present day focus of that is what I'm doing in human rights. Yes. Um, I was asked whether or not the advocates of human for human rights, which I'm a part, is headquartered in Minneapolis, by the way, and that's where mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's global. We work globally, and through many. Um, international and national organizations. But um, I ask if that's a part of the church. It is not officially a part of the church. It's a independent public interest law firm. Mm -hmm. However, my church is very supportive of that work, both financially and uh, 
but the presence of persons, yes. uh, volunteers. Uh, we have something called court watching. Since I represent asylum clients, people who are in, in trouble, uh, who are persecuted, um, I'm in court. Uh, and the immigration courts, and they really work hard, they, but they are overwhelmed with work. Mm. And as a result, uh, they're under pressure to get things moving. That means that they 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 can and do make mistakes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the that the uh, court watches program established by the Advocates for Human Rights is a program in which you, people are trained, volunteers are trained to go in and watch, to know what the rules are, what should take place, and then to be able to share that information so they can encourage yeah. and help the court to follow the rules and not mm -hmm. take shortcuts. Mm -hmm. And and again, this is not to be critical of the court, uh, but these are we are human beings, so yes. the court can make mistakes. But the but the church has responded so well to the court watching program and to get that training and to make those reports. So the church and the legal community, particularly the advocates have come together in that way. That's one of the ways they mm -hmm. come together. And, and Kwame, uh, if someone's listening and 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 viewing and viewing this show and wants to kind of contribute financially or contribute time and talent or become become trained or just to learn out learn more about your the, your information your organization, what's the best way for them to do that? Go online and go to the advocates for human rights dot org or a the letter A for advocates, HR, advocatesforhumanrights.org. And it not only will it give information on the work that we do locally and globally, mm -hmm. but it also tells you how to donate, how people Indeed. can, in fact, contribute. Indeed. And and you, you referenced, I guess, don't, don't want to lose the historical context of of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt in terms of this, the United Nations thing that you referenced and just yes. the, the irony there. So, so just remind people again about this human rights for declaration that this 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 idea is, is still resonating even more, percolating up like crazy, raging up, I should say. Uh, but but just share with people a little bit more about what that, that document that was created uh, by the United Nations. And, and as you were indicating, Eleanor Roosevelt was there at the founding of the United Nations as a whole, and she was uh, one of the persons who was instrumental in that regard. But one of the things that she was committed to and um, was accomplished in 1948 uh, was the Uniform Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and it continues to be a guide to um, all advocates, but certainly our organization, the Advocates for Human Rights, um, in setting the tone, the pace, and the standards mm. um, for taking concerns and action around the world and taking uh, those violations of human rights to the United Nations, to the uh, International Court of, uh, uh, of, of Justice. But that doc declaration that Eleanor Roosevelt and others established is the guide for us in our advocacy work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And prior prior to that, Kwame, uh, did you work with some of the share with us whether it's legal aid or some of the law firms or how your 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 legal journey? I, I, 
not not to put you on blast too much, but always we have a lot of young people that listen to the show, and I I love for for them to hear that your 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 career route does not have to be a straight line. It does not have to be not have to be linear, and there might be dead ends and exits and curves, and you kind of just adjust and you know because you hear this thing about follow your passion, follow your bliss, but sometimes that's a, that's a circuitous route, so to speak. So so share with some folks about about, about your your circuitous route. Uh, you're so right. It, uh, it's often not a straight line. Uh, we change or we find new direction. Um, but a key to that is following one's passion. Uh, and mine started with my going to work for a law firm at first uh, in Washington, D.C. And I, I certainly got good training there. That was good. Uh, and the law firm was doing important work uh, on a case-by-case -case basis, dealing with people's property rights. Uh, we didn't do a lot of criminal law there, though I did do some early on and what have you. But that's an area that uh, is important to represent people in in court who are mm -hmm. uh, facing uh, a jeopardy because of being uh, accused of crime uh, and what have you. So those things were typical uh, run-of-the-mill legal areas, mm -hmm. um, important. <laughs> but it wasn't long before I realized that that uh, is not where I wanted to remain for my full <laughs> career. And again, it was part of my being drawn back to um, the call to um, training in religion. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when I, um, I, I don't know how you felt when you first entered a, a seminary, the Yale Divinity School, but <clears throat> excuse me, when I first started, I thought it was an exploration. I would just get some sense of direction, and I wasn't even sure that I would stay the full time. I maybe I got would get some direction and and do something else. Well, um, early on, when I arrived at school, uh, in seminary, I had a professor. Um, who helped me see that staying in seminary was not only a good idea, but maybe I really was called to a, a to ministry. Hmm. So I stayed in seminary, finished, was ordained, and was blessed to be able to serve as a pastor. Uh, and by the way, I served as a pastor in your home state and city. I didn't know until recently that you're from Pittsburgh. Uh, yes, Port of Pittsburgh, East Liberty, uh, home, Homewood section. Mm -hmm. Well, I served a, as pastor of a church in Oakland, the yes. Community of Reconciliation. It's uh, right next to the uh, University of Pittsburgh, the Cathedral of Learning. I'm sure mm. you know all of that. And mm -hmm. I lived on the hill. And that's where August Wilson uh, wrote about it, when I have you. I arrived mm -hmm. in Pittsburgh. I don't want to uh, stray too much, but I arrived uh, on the hill just after August Wilson left. And by the way, I'm because I'm hit with the advocates now, I'm in the, uh, the Twin Cities. And I arrived in the Twin Cities mm -hmm. just after August Wilson left here, uh, <laughs> this area. So mm -hmm. I guess I was following August Wilson around. Right. But but I did have the privilege of serving as a pastor. I, I also taught uh, in that Cathedral of Learning at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, adjunct, uh, that mm -hmm. is one course a, a semester. Uh, 
Um, but it was, and the course I taught was in the legal studies program. So mm -hmm. I, again, I saw that as bringing together um, my call to the church as well as my call to, to the law. So I was not practicing law at that moment. Um, after serving as local pastorate, serving in the denomination that is a, a, a wider church work, the Central mm -hmm. Atlantic Conference of the United Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was the association minister for what's called the Potomac Association mm -hmm. of the United Church of Christ in Washington, D.C. Uh, but I did have the justice and witness portfolio. So mm -hmm. again, it was bringing together the commitment to justice. Though again, I wasn't at that moment practicing law, but I, I was active in the church. Uh, the time came when, um, having served in that area, um, I became aware of the work of human rights attorneys, yeah. but also advocates who have many other skills, many other um, areas of advocacy, lobbying, um, seeking justice, seeking to restore justice and peace. And that's yes. part of the it's, uh, uh, justice and peace. So becoming aware of that, I did return to the practice of law. And this time it was not going to be in a law firm. Uh, <laughs> well, the Advocates Human Rights uh, is a law firm, but it's sure. a public interest law firm. And it is a nonprofit law firm. Yes. Uh, but we are highly supported. Uh, the support that comes in uh, shows that uh, you don't have to be for a uh, for-profit organization uh, to be able to do your work and be able to get the resources that you need. So mm. we continue to um, reach out and hope that people will want to observe our work, see what we're doing, and support us. Mm -hmm. But this time, uh, I am in an area where I can uh, bring not only bring together my commitment to my faith um, and and the law, but I am an advocate in the courtroom representing yeah. people who need that representation. And, and do you have to travel throughout the United States or you, do you do a lot of the, the virtual adjudication? What's the, the your process? I, I, I think that you're right on point there. And because uh, we and, and uh, <clears throat> attorneys sometimes are members of the bar in, in more than one state, what have you. But um, because this is federal, uh, I am able to practice in all 50 states mm. and represent mm. clients in all 50 states. And early on, I was traveling a lot, but now so much of it is virtual and that is basically a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It is effective, we're able to accomplish. Um, but I am able very often to represent clients that I know that I'm able to be with them, sit with them, be in the courtroom, looking at the judge in person. Mm -hmm. Not always, but yeah, uh, your point is well taken. I am able to represent clients around the country and the uh, Zoom, as you and I are on Zoom right now, uh, fortunately that makes it possible to be in a lot of different places without getting on airplanes, without uh, in, uh, increasing our uh, our footprint. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, carbon, our carbon footprint. Carbon absolutely. footprint. And when you referenced uh, August Wilson, my mind went to 
many many people may may know some of the names of some of his plays, but the the two trains running. So there's a there's always a few trains trains running, and depending on what what track you get on and and where your destination might be. So I really appreciate your sharing sharing the journey. How long have you have you been with the Human Rights Organization? Well, this particular one, this time uh, it's since 2015. Okay. Uh, other encounter prior to that, but basically in terms of being really with them uh, on an ongoing basis. So it's it's been eight years now. Good, good, good for you. Let's let's jump for a second because your your journey is so so intriguing. You had, had, were kind enough to share with me the phrase reparations, reparations for slavery, reparations for slavery. What's uh I, I was intrigued, intrigued with that, uh, with that phrase, that 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 cognitive definition, and your involvement with with man, with it not just being a word, but but kind of a uh, an economic and social, it becoming an economic and social reality. So what's what's the what's what, what's up with this reparation for slavery and your involvement in that regard? And my particular involvement is with an uh, effort, a movement we call it Sacred Reckonings. Um, and again, it's another area in which the, the, I'm, I'm one of the people involved, but the two leaders of it, one's a minister, the other is an attorney. So it's, it's, it's again, bringing together the work of our faith community uh, as well as the, uh, the legal community. But, and I gave a presentation two, well, uh, several months ago mm -hmm. um, on this, and I wrote the paper uh, uh, and in which I described that it is not about just giving dollars. Reparations is about being able to support institutions as well as persons mm. in this effort to make amends, mm. to repair. In fact, reparations, the basic of the term uh, reparations is to repair, mm -hmm. repair the damage that was done. Mm. Um, and again, it, it is uh, in this country that I'm I'm mostly involved with uh, uh, the work, the sacred reckonings work, but um, it is international also. Mm -hmm. uh, an, an effort to, uh, one of the things that is identified is identified those who are those organizations, those institutions, those nations that are still benefiting from slavery. Their hmm. money, they became wealthy because of uh, the wealth coming from slavery, enslaved persons, but they are still receiving the benefits. There is a, a, a nothing like um, being able to um, keep on living on the sins of the past. Mm. Uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we have the the, the king of, uh, of, of the Netherlands, um, who is able to trace his family back to uh, their wealth starting with enslavement in the Caribbean, mm. enslavement of persons in the Caribbean. And they are working to give back. I think that is real as opposed to uh, just a, a slogan. Um, but the giving is to institutions that support those who are still underprivileged, those mm. who are still disadvantaged. Now, there's a debate 
in the in the area where I am, should there be money given to persons who are um, the heirs of enslavement? Um, and I, I will just say, frankly, I've taken a stand on that. Mm. Um, I think trying to give people dollars and cents or uh, pounds or whatever the um, monetary uh, system happens to be is not uh, an effective way to proceed. But to be able to um, support the educational opportunities, the work opportunities, the training mm -hmm. opportunities mm -hmm. of persons who still advantage is something that has received and is receiving serious commitment. And that's where I am. Mm -hmm. And Kwame, just as you been talking for the last 30 or 40 minutes, so many ideas have, and thoughts have come to mind. I want to jump back to your, your your legal hat in terms of how do cases uh, come to your attention? Because uh, my, my guess is that for every person that you're representing, there's a, a multiple number of folks that can use your services that are not receiving your services. So how does someone that is seeking asylum or et cetera, uh, how do they become aware of you? How do you find them? What's the, the, the discovery mechanism? Every client that I'm representing right now uh, comes across the southern border. And, and by the way, I have clients, and I have a case uh, from Ethiopia right now, mm -hmm. um, sub-Saharan Africa. I've represented persons from Latin America and other parts of the world. But my clients, this is not always the case, my clients have all come from the southern border. How they mm -hmm. get to uh, South America and Central America Mexico and what have you are some present some very fascinating stories. Mm -hmm. um, but some people actually come on planes. They come on with visas. They might have a student visa, H one visa, different types of uh, opportunities to get into the country. But once mm -hmm. they're here, that is when they can apply for asylum. Those my clients who come uh, from this up from the southern border, um, we have persons who are there who mm. interview people. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, uh, I know there are some in the country who are very angry with us because we find those persons who have been persecuted. We don't just go and try to represent anybody who crosses the border. Mm -hmm. We do um, interview and talk to I, I Usually when I meet them, they have already gone through this process um, and they're in the court system, the immigration court system. Mm -hmm. But they're interviewed uh, and those who show they have a real fear, a real fear of returning to their home countries because of persecution, uh, then can apply to our organization. So they know the name of the Advocates for Human Rights and other human rights organizations. We mm -hmm. are not the only one. They know it because uh, caring human rights uh, volunteers have gone down and talked to them. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to that, some know through their relatives, it's a, a word of mouth. They they read and, and discover us on their own. But we do reach out. We reach out to those persons who uh, have faced and have a fear of mm. being persecuted in the future. Mm. Mm. Let's let's uh let's jump back to the the, the Middle East situation. I want to draw upon your. I, I mentioned earlier that you, both of us are 
uh, have been AARP eligible for some some time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's wisdom and insight that comes with age. And sometimes I think we can kind of just be caught in, in the in the continual maze and bumping up against <laughs> against mental mental obstacles. Uh, but 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 mine is going to Kwame when when you were just referencing your your ministerial commitment as well about the, you know the the room in the inn and and uh, people having the the story about folks in Christmas time having to come in and pay taxes and uh, just just the, the Bible is is fraught with uh, I, I would say asylum stories. Uh, so so I'm just just curious what are some of you, some of your thoughts from a ministerial standpoint. If you were to give a sermon on on Sunday or or you may have been, I know you don't currently stand in the pulpit each day, but each Sunday. But I'm sure in your mind you still you you probably com compose sermons even in in your mind that you haven't you haven't given thus far. Well, what, what's on your heart, mind, and soul these days? Uh, in terms of this uh the the the, the persecution that that's going on and, and has been going on. You mentioned Ethiopia. Uh, you could have went to, mentioned Argentina. You could have mentioned, you know, other places, the Congo. Uh, you mentioned the global aspect. So I'm just curious of mentally what's uh, what, what's percolating in those those uh, they, those brain cells in your, that you have pertaining to, you know, the sacred and the secular and, and this journey of can we create peace sure. on earth, yeah. goodwill toward women, men and women, children and men. Yes. Uh, and. You're correct that I'm not in the pulpit every Sunday, but I'm humbled um, by the fact that I am invited to pulpits. So I, mm. I am invited to speak. And one of the things that um, I'm addressing right now is that as we are in Advent and Advent moving toward Christmas, mm -hmm. that we are talking about the story of a refugee, one who yes. sought asylum. And he's even called uh, Jesus the Christ. His mm -hmm. family, they were refugees. They had mm -hmm. to escape persecution. And that is um, so ironic quite often that the same persons who are not hospitable to refugees coming to the country are too often those who claim to be followers of Christ. Mm. So that is very much on my mind right now, that we are celebrating and moving towards celebrating the birth of a refugee who needed asylum, mm -hmm. who's, uh, who was um, from a family that was being persecuted in his home country. Those are the people I represent. So mm -hmm. when I am speaking now, at this time, I speak about my, rep I, I do talk about my work, my human rights work from the pulpit, um, but I talk about the fact that I represent persons who are persecuted, and we are worshiping and celebrating the coming into the world of one who came in under persecution and who sought asylum. Mm -hmm. And of course, he went from his homeland, the Middle East that we've been talking about, to Africa, mm -hmm. uh, to Egypt. Um, and 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 but it is all over the world. Yeah, I mentioned Ethiopia. I, I do represent clients, and I have represented clients from uh, Central America. You mentioned the things that are happening in Argentina right now. I don't, excuse me for coughing. I don't happen to have clients from Argentina right now, but but still clients from uh, Latin America. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we celebrate a recent victory 
and I have this online. I know you and I uh, communicate also through Facebook, and I have a story on there in terms of a, a recent victory representing a client from the Congo. Mm. Um, so Sub-Saharan Africa is part of the work that we do. Um, but when I'm in the pulpit, I am or witnessing wherever I happen to be. Mm -hmm. uh, it is to lift up the commitment to justice for those who are suffering persecution. And that is a theme for me in this, this holy season. It is holy. Mm -hmm. And it, it is about refugees. What is there a particular uh, passage in the Old or New Testament that comes to your mind, Kwame, as we're kind of on this tip, and I'm going to come back to uh, some of the, the current events in terms of the bombs that are dropping and the missiles that are being shot. Uh, but as as we speak right now and commune with one another, is there any particular uh, Old or New Testament passage that kind of comes to your mind? Well, uh, this past Sunday's um, um, passage um, from uh, lectionary uh, passage, uh, from Mark. Now, I should have it in front of me right now, but it, but it, it is one that is takes us into Advent. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. This is John the Baptist speaking. And I the idea of us preparing for God, preparing the way for God, is very much on my mind right now. And if we are preparing for God, that means we are committed to justice. Um, John dying in the wilderness because uh, the message is being rejected so loudly. It is being rejected by those who claim to be a part of a nation committed. Mm -hmm to what's right, just, and protection of those who have been a part of oppression. Um, nobody talk, well, I shouldn't say nobody, um, but we don't talk about that theme very much now. I don't hear it on the Statue of Liberty. It says that uh, bring those who are, are suffering in. We have a different atmosphere right now. So a big concern I have is that we're going directly against that which we claim to stand for. Mm -hmm. um, preparing the way for um, calls us back to the task that we as people of faith have claimed. And yet we are in the midst of an environment that puts us in the wilderness yes. where many don't want to hear that. If, Kwame, if there's a young lawyer, say, or someone that's considering the legal profession, maybe an undergrad or even graduate school or even looking for an interdisciplinary kind of major, what would you say to some some young folks that might be you know, in their 20s or late teens or in college or grad school thinking about the legal profession? What, what, what would you say to them in terms of uh, uh, whether they should enter? And, because it, it seems to me that they see so much of the confusion and chaos and kind of... Uh, 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 
this, the, the, the Babylonian, Babylonian chaos of, of languages. What would you say to a young person that still wants to pursue law, but still might feel that law has been impotent in terms of really resolving issues such as what's encountering, encountering us now in the Middle East? What would you say to them about pursuing the, the legal profession as a career? Yeah, it is interesting to me, at least, that young people are discouraged from going into law. Um, and it has to do with that statement that you made there that uh, many see it, law as being impotent. Well, it, is, it, it uh, can be impotent, uh, powerless. Uh, however, that depends on whether or not one uh, is able to find inspiration in the service of those who, have, who are some who are working now and those who've gone before. Um, I went to a law school Howard University School of Law, where the message of our legal training, uh, the one that I repeat often uh, and have a an article that uh, I have on my desk that just talks about this, where Charles Hamilton Houston mm -hmm. said that uh, a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. Hmm. And it's not everybody who is my colleague and friend, even my, my schoolmates, are happy to be told that uh, it can very easily be the case where they are parasites on society if their goal is just to make money. Hmm. Um. Having said that, I will also say that it is not a bad idea to get initial training in areas where you can develop your skills. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and law firms are places where that can happen. Mm -hmm. um, and law firms are committed to making money. Uh, absolutely. But they are also, because they want to make money uh, for other reasons, they also give great training. So, And I started off in a law firm. So getting that kind of initial training is not a bad idea, but it should also be a part of finding one's passion as mm -hmm. I feel that I have continued to do. And I'm still, I have, I have my passion, but I, yeah. I, I'm still finding my, my way in that regard. And I would yeah. say to young people who want to go to law school, get training, get good training and get experience um, because first you need it. And number two, if you don't get it, uh, you're not going to be respected. <laughs> so yeah. uh, seeking good training, and that will enable you to follow your passion, and you discover the law is not impotent. That hmm. The law is a very powerful a tool, can be a very powerful tool and a very powerful arena. Um, I know that uh, my fellow Howard University uh, law graduates, he's a lot younger than I am, but Letitia James, uh, a, a strong, a mighty woman of, of faith, um, is one who is committed to good training, and she's an outstanding lawyer, but she found her passion. The, the Attorney General for the State uh, of New York. Attorney General of from New York, a Howard University law graduate, mm -hmm. a 1987 law, Howard University School law graduate, Letitia James. Um, 
but getting good training and then following the passion and the uh, uh, passion for her is the law. It is also politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is also something that is still realistic mm-hmm. for a- attorneys who I hope will practice law. It's important, I say, to practice law. But also, it is uh, one of the avenues to politics. There are others who, other ways to go into politics also. So I have, ex- there are examples such as Letitia, mm-hmm. um, who do both. Another Howard graduate, she did not go to Howard Law School, but Howard undergrad, is Fannie Willis. Now, I'm from the South. They keep, mm-hmm. I hear on, on some who in the media, talking heads, uh, refer to Fannie Willis. Well, we Southerners know her name is pronounced Fannie. Mm-hmm. Um, but also a strong person of faith um, who got good training and then also decided to serve in the public arena. Mm-hmm. Um, you can work to make money. It is possible to make money, but you can also be committed to service. And we have just those outstanding examples of people of faith. And I'm glad that my Howard University, and I and I claim Yale University too, since we <laughs> went, uh, went to both, uh, but um inspires us to public service, to be social engineers, to bring about, to seek justice and to seek to change those things that are wrong and to improve on those things that we are trying to do right. Social engineering is a major tool for young lawyers and I would encourage uh, those who are interested in law undergrad or if they're already in law school, to look at social engineering as a reason for practicing law. Indeed, indeed. I, uh, I the one of our former presidents. I don't mention his name, but I refer to him as one forty fifth uh, because I think he gets it's, it's any credibility he has is not a whole credibility. It's one forty fifth, but certainly Letitia James is not on his uh, his his favorite list. Talk 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 about uh, just elaborate a little bit more about. Uh, Letitia's power, and I think the current situation in New York with 145th is a good example of where truth, truth and justice can kind of let's hopefully hopefully prevail. And she is prevailing. Uh, by the way, the major part of the case that she has in terms of 145th, uh, she's already won that case. Uh, has a dec- decision in terms of someone who is a fraud, a fraudulent activity. So she's been able to do that. And the second part of that case uh, continues today, as a matter of fact. Um, 145th was supposed to be testifying today. He will not do that. Um, And I I don't see much wisdom on the part of that person who is on civil trial, in this case. He's on criminal trial in a number of cases, including New York. But... um, uh, the one wise decision maybe people helped him to see was not to uh, testify again. I wish he did testify, but the, the Tisha has built such a strong case until the defendant in that case has realized and our attorneys have realized that there is no point in coming and perjuring oneself again. Perjuring, that is, that's the legal concept of lying. Mm-hmm. Um, lying is bad, but perjury, you can be held accountable for it. And he, 
Silva and Letitia has been able to expose not only the fraud, but the perjury. Uh, and, as a and as a result, she is driving a major crook out of New York State. And that organization, that criminal enterprise will not be functioning in New York State any longer, starting now, but also after this trial is completely over. But this this woman, uh, this outstanding person, mm -hmm. is the one who has done that and is doing that. And this is supposedly one of the most, most well, supposedly the claim was one of the wealthiest persons in the world. Um, she's been able to expose that as a as as a fraud also, um, but she has been able to say that this criminal enterprise is going to leave New York State and 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 might actually be uh, dissolved, period. Hmm. Her passion for justice is what led her to achieve that. And let me mention also that now her role is civil as opposed to the criminal role. She does have some uh, criminal powers sometimes. It's, it's not the regular part of her role. But in her being able to pursue the the money, follow the money, and mm -hmm. her being able to uh, um, end this criminal enterprise, she also gave information to District Attorney uh, Bragg, mm -hmm. Alvin Bragg, um, for his criminal prosecution there. So while her role is civil, she has been able to provide the evidence, the the proof, the capacity to address the criminal enterprise, both civilly and in the criminal arena, yes, through the prosecuting attorney. Yes. Kwame, we have about th three more minutes. I want to give you a chance for the uh, kind, of, kind of concluding comments. And just to, when you, you, when you mentioned the, the, the current attorney general for New York, and then just kind of juxtapose that with Charles Hamilton Houston and and social engineering, and obviously, in that framework, one minds, one's mind goes to Thurgood Marshall and Constance Baker Motley, et cetera. Uh, what, what kind of, you know, for I want to give you the last, the last word uh, for for this particular session. By the way, this is not not going to be a one off. I'm going to come back to you again to see if we can do another. Oh my, another show a little a little later. Uh, perhaps in March or or April or just just as the spirit moves you please reach out to me but kind of any any concluding thoughts in this regard because the the intersection of, of law and sec the, sometimes as as you as your journey has, has kind of illustrated it's a could be considered to be a false dichotomy uh be between the secular and the sacred that everything could be considered to be sacred but I just want to give you a, a chance to kind of comment on it in the last uh, 30 seconds or a minute in this regard and I'm glad you mentioned you, uh, something that I have been asked about a lot. Uh, some have said law and religion, those two don't go together. They they, they seem to be opposite. Well, and I tried to talk about how um, they can come together. They don't have to, but we can do this. But you, um, you uh, again, coming back to Charles Hamilton Houston, um, and he was the mentor for Thurgood Marshall, mm -hmm. uh, of course. Uh, but there is a woman that uh, is not well enough known, but she's getting better known, uh, who was also uh, 
mentored by both uh, Houston and uh, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, you, I, I could talk about Constantine oh, Motley, okay. but, I, but, but I'm talking about Pauli Murray. Oh, Pauli Murray, sure. Okay. Uh, and Pauli Murray, also a graduate of Howard's Law School, um, when she was a student in law school, she uh, had a concept for being able to address segregation. Um, Plessy versus Ferguson decision, which claimed that the separate but equal was the rule of the day, that uh, uh, you can keep the races separate as long as they're equal. Well, she pointed out, um, others had pointed this out, that, mm -hmm. that they're separate, they're, they're not equal because the majority population is in fact going to be the one that has resources and has the power. Um, when she was a, an, a student in law school and the strategy was to try and make them equal. It, it, Howard's Law School also was pushing uh, at that time um, to make things equal um, while realizing that segregation was in fact um, the standard on the Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, but she said, no, let's get rid of the, um, the, the separate because it can't be equal. Uh, and Pauli graduated first in her class at the Howard Law School. Mm -hmm. But um, her classmates actually, but because of professors, some professors led the way. They laughed at her. They said, that's no way you're going to uh, get rid of Plessy versus Ferguson, that you're going to end um, the separate, that is segregation. Well, she came up with a strategy. And by the time, before he died in 1950, that is Charles Hampton Houston, he had come to her way of thinking. Now, some mm -hmm. have later on, uh, indicated that, well, uh, Howard professors came to that conclusion on their own without Murray. That that sexism, and I've written about that sex, that sexism did, deserves a volume of its own, at least mm. one volume. Mm. Um, they didn't want to give her credit, but she is the one who developed the idea that you get rid of the separate and you get rid of the whole institution of segregation. And by the time, before he died in 1950, um, Charles Hamlin Houston had had uh, his mentor, his mentee, uh, Thurgood Marshall, and others to accept Pauli Murray's perspective on that. Yes, yes. Now, I got to know, I knew of her because we'd gone to the same law school, but I got to know Pauli Murray when she was awarded a doctorate at Yale University. I happened to be at Yale at that time, after having finished both undergrad and law school at Howard but uh, had gone on to um, to your alma mater, Yale, uh, later on. And I was there when she received that honorary doctorate. Now, she received the honorary doctorate after having earned uh, the uh, SJD, um, Juridical Science Doctorate, at Yale. She earned, that's an earned degree, mm -hmm. the highest legal degree. She earned that at Yale after having been a Howard University graduate. But uh, I was there when she got the honorary degree, recognized for her having named the strategy for ending segregation, Brown versus Board of Education yes. strategy, the one that was eventually accepted. And of course, you mentioned, um, maybe we don't, have to, we don't have time to talk yeah, about- about, 10, 10, about, about 15 seconds, yeah. But um, uh, again, Constance Baker Motley was also involved in that very same 
strategy that Pauli Murray pronounced. Indeed. And as you know, Kwame, the the recent residential college has been named after Pauli Murray here, here on campus at Yale. So yes. her, her name's been lifted up. Kwame, thank you so much. As I say, I'm not, not to not to cut you off, but but we, we we've set the stage, laid out the table for the next show. So well, my the, goodness, the, 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 don't feel that we this is a an end, but no, this is a a new a new beginning for for 2024. I want to thank you so much for for kind of spending the time, and 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 appreciate your really sharing with folks and providing providing really some some subs, substantive inspiration. So so I, I I thank you in that regard. Thank you. Be well and and see you soon. I hope so. Thank you. All right. Good, my friend. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at devoiding myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains, haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. You're listening to the Tom Thicken Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio.